13 years ago, David Wilkinson wrote a book called The Prayer of Jabez. Some of you have read it. Many of you have studied it. It's a good prayer. First Chronicles 4. Two lines in Hebrew. It's a prayer of seeking and a prayer of blessing. But you know, there is another prayer in the Bible that probably ought to be a book. The prayer of Jonah. Jonah chapter 2. If you were here two weeks ago, you heard our good friend Ken Wagner preach. My mother said, he went longer than you. I said, it's not going to be a trend, Mom. Not going to be a trend. If you haven't heard it, you ought to. It's, you can get the podcast or the CD of it. All about Jonah. A whole sermon on four chapters. Well, here we look at nine verses. The prayer of Jonah, beginning in Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, that is hell, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed over me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. For the better part of three decades, this man has been the quintessential Hollywood actor. I'll say his name in a couple of sentences, but let's see if you can guess. He is British. He's won an Academy Award, two Emmys. He's been knighted by Queen Elizabeth. He has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And 16 years ago at age 60, at the height of his acting career, Anthony Hopkins quit. Anthony Hopkins said it this way, I can't take it anymore. This has got to stop. I've wasted my life to hell with the stupid show business, this futile waste of life, all those years speaking in a fake environment. Everything was fake, and I'm done. And that's quite a declaration. I could see if he stunk as an actor. But Anthony Hopkins... Quitting at 60? 
Years ago, I worked with a man who needed a hip replacement. And so he goes to the hospital and he gets all the testing, the screening, the blood work. He was scared of the AIDS epidemic, so he gave his own blood. And during the pre-screening, a nurse said to him, Sir, have you exercised strenuously in the last 24 hours? He looked at her indignantly and said, Madam, I haven't exercised strenuously in the last 24 years. And when he told me it, I laughed. And then I remembered how when we walked together, how heavily he breathed. And then I remembered how long... Not long after his surgery, he died. Someone asked the question, if God is sovereign, who cares how I live? If Jesus is the author and the finisher of my faith, what does it matter what I do? If God has chosen me and called me, And redeemed me. And justified me in his father's sight. What does it matter how I live? What is there to be done? Why don't I just live like I please? You know something? Every time that question is asked. You say it's one more than one question. Yeah, but it's the same question. Every time it's asked, it's always asked because there's been a clear presentation of the true gospel of Jesus. Romans chapter 5. Paul makes it clear. After giving three chapters of our complete ruin and sin, four and five, our complete remedy in Christ, Paul then declares, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And then immediately he poses the question that he knows they are asking. If that's true, if grace abounds more than sin, then why not go on sinning that grace might abound? In other words, if Jesus has paid it all, why not sin my brains out? a good question. It follows from a true presentation of the gospel. You'll never hear that when you hear a legalist preach. But when you hear the clear clarion call of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the question you get. If Jesus did it all and it's finished, then it really doesn't matter how I live. Isn't that right? There's a Reformed Baptist up in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. His name is John Piper. Many of you know him. He's written widely. And about 10 years ago, he wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life. And you know the amazing thing? He didn't write it to pagans. He wrote it to Christians. He wrote it to a Christian audience. He wrote it to those who've been chosen by God, called by God, redeemed by God, justified by God. And he said to them, don't waste your life. And you say to yourself, how is that possible? How is it possible for a Christian to waste their life? Well, two weeks ago, Ken Wagner had us in the book of Jonah. 
And there he pointed out very rightly that Jonah is a mixed bag. Sometimes he gets it. Sometimes he's dumb as a post. Just like you. Just like me. But you know, there's one time, at least in the book of Jonah, where Jonah gets it. And you know where that is? When he's in the belly of the fish. When he's in the belly of the whale, from there he prays a prayer that's different than a prayer of seeking, a prayer of blessing. It's different because at the core of that prayer is surrender. He says in verse 2, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He, the Lord, answered me. And the rest of that prayer is God's answer to the question. Since you are sovereign, what's there for me to do? Since you are sovereign, Lord, what's it matter whether I go to Nineveh or whether I go to Tarshish? What's it matter? God gives the answer. Before we look at it, remember the context. Eight centuries before Jesus. God calls a man by the name of Jonah, whose name means dove, whose father's name means my truth. He calls him to go to the city of Nineveh and to preach against them. Preach all about their sin. Now, who are these people? They are the arch enemies of Israel. They are the arch enemies of anyone in that region of the world at the time. Within less than a a generation, these people will come and they will destroy Israel. And yet here, about 20 years earlier, God calls his prophet Jonah to go preach against them. God tells him to go to Nineveh. That's 600 miles east. Jonah takes off to go 2,000 miles west. Now, Nineveh is an impregnable city. It was said that that city, it tells us in this book, that city is three days' journey across. If a man walked a normal day's journey, he's walking about 15 to 20 miles. So imagine the size of this. And this city had a wall that was 15 feet high and 5 feet thick surrounding it. Not only did it have a wall, it had a moat. And the moat was 60 feet deep and more than 100 yards across all around this city. In antiquity, there was no city like this. It was a wonder of the world and everyone had the same conclusion. There's no way to defeat this city. And yet God tells Jonah, to go to his arch enemies, to the haters of God and Israel, and to preach against them. And when Jonah goes west, instead of east, even if you're in Sunday school as a kid, you know the story. God intervenes. He sends a mighty wind and a storm on the sea so that these these professional mariners are scared for their lives. And after they throw him over into the sea, overboard into the sea, God provides at that particular moment before Jonah drowns a large fish or a whale. Not only does he provide a fish, 
He provides an answer to Jonah's question, which is, if you are God and you can do what you want to, what's it matter what I do? You want to hear the answer? Let's dig in. First, notice, God is the one who casts him into the sea. Look at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the sea, the flood surrounded me. Now you ask yourself, is that really true? I thought it was those sailors that threw him over. Somebody said, coincidence is a synonym for God. Napoleon, when he was at the height of his power and the height of his pride, said, I make my own circumstances, and yet Moscow and Waterloo demonstrate that he was full of hooey. According to Jonah, there is only one who makes circumstances. And interestingly, in the book of Jonah, the first ones to understand that are pagan sailors. What do they say? What do you mean, you sleeper? How can you sleep? Rise, call to your God. Perhaps he will give thought to us. And then moments later, after Jonah tells them what's happening, they say to him, how could you do this? What is this that you've done? You see, they understand the truth. Even these pagans know what worship really means. It means to follow the one that you hold dear. They know that to worship any God means to give your life to that God and to follow Him. And Jonah isn't. In fact, the proof of that The proof of their understanding of that is that when they pick him up to throw him overboard, they pray to God, the God of Jonah, asking for forgiveness. And then they say, oh, Lord, you have done as it pleases you. You see, the first answer, the first step in the answer to the question, if God is sovereign, what's there for me to do is this. If he's sovereign, you ought to do what he tells you to do. I mean, if he's God and you're looking for advice, you ought to take it from him. Then second, notice that God's not only the one who casts him, he's also the one who catches him. Look at verse 6b. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Now, see, it's one thing to cast somebody into the sea. It's another thing to catch them when they're in the sea. I mean, it's one thing to throw them overboard. It's another thing to send them in the midst of a storm and a violent sea to send them a fish to swallow them whole. But the God of land, the God of sea, can provide a fish big enough to swallow him before he drowns. But I want you to notice that God does something more than that. He does more than send a fish. Look what he says Jonah does in verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered you, O Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. In other words, this belly of the fish became to me like the temple of God. In other words, God, you met me in the belly of a fish. And when you met me there, you prompted me to remember you, to call out to you, and also you prompted me to see your face. Do you see this? 
Look what he says. My prayer came to you in your holy temple. In other words, the belly of the fish in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the sea, became the dwelling place of God. And Lord, you met me there. Think of it. Without the casting, there would never have been a catching. Without the catching, there would never be the sight of God. And without the sight of God, there would never be the surrender to him. Somebody asks, if God is sovereign, if he's chosen me, if he's called me, if he's redeemed me, if he's preserved me, if he's justified me, what is there for me to do? You know what Jonah would say to that? How about loving him? How about worshiping him? Now, I don't know if Jonah would have added this, but I think he might have. How about loving him, you idiot? How about setting the affections of your heart upon the one who not only casts you, but catches you? Why don't you listen to the ways in which he's beckoned you to follow him? And then third. Notice the third answer here. Third part of the answer. Not only did I cast you and I caught you, but I also convinced you. Look at verse 8. Now, I'm going to give it to you in the NIV, because this is one of the times the NIV really translates it in a very good way. Listen to what it says. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be there. Now, you make a mistake if you're anything like me in, in the past, when I see that word grace, I always think of salvation. The moment you're redeemed. That's only part of it. You go home and think through the words or get a hymn book and look at amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Redemption. But all through the rest of the lyrics, the grace refers to what God does on a regular basis. He not only saves us once in the past, he's continually saving us. You know, he's saying saving us from mostly ourselves. Listen to what the Hebrew says about this verse. Here's the direct translation. Those who pay heed to vanities forsake hesed. Hesed. I think if there was one word of the Bible that I was able to preach for the last time, it would be that word hesed. The greatest word you used to describe the character of God in the whole Old Testament, hesed. H-E-S-E-D. That's how it's transliterated. Hesed. Used over a thousand times. You know how it's normally translated? Steadfast love. Loving kindness. Mercy. Grace. And listen to what Jonah says. Those who pay heed to their idols, those who pay heed to vanity, forsake your steadfast love. They forsake your loving kindness. They forsake your mercy. Do you hear this? 
That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 6. The more you sin, the more grace you receive. The more you sin, the more grace abounds. Therefore, why shouldn't we go on sinning? That grace would abound even more. To which Paul never says you didn't understand the gospel. That's a logical question. He says, why would you go back into the slavery that you've been freed from? You haven't been saved for this. He took you from bondage. Why would you go back? Now, there are those who read this prayer and they think immediately when they think of those clinging to worthless idols of those pagan mariners. They're clinging to worthless idols. They're pagans. But ladies and gentlemen, the one who's clinging to worthless idols here are not just the pagans. Even in their blindness, they understand a little bit of truth. It's Jonah. Jonah is clinging to worthless idols. You say, what are they? Well, first of all, it's prejudice. That the Assyrians are wicked and God hates them. And the Jews are holy, righteous, and God loves them. What's another idol? I'm a prophet. I'm a prophet of God. I know what is true and untrue. How about the idol of arrogance? I can do what I want to do, and because I can do what I want to do, God should affirm what I want to do. You know what John Calvin said? He said the human heart is an idol factory. Doesn't mean a factory that's it on strike idle that way. All right? It's an idol factory. It produces idols all the time. And what are those idols? Anything that occupies your heart more than God. Have you ever in your own life had your heart occupied by something more than God? Tell the truth. How about in the last hour? It may be your kids. It may be your pension or lack of it. It may be your health. It may be your security. But every time we cling to those idols, we fail to enjoy all the mercies that are ours in following Him. He doesn't damn us to hell. He just lets us kind of walk in it. Follow your idols and suffer. Follow me and receive grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, steadfast love, my loving kindness. You know, almost 40 years ago, I picked up Pat Robertson from the airport in Boston. He was coming to our campus to speak. So as he sat there in the passenger seat, I said, hey, Pat, what's new? And he, my dad worked for him, and so we knew each other. The next day, when he spoke to the entire student body, he referred to that question. He said, you know, yesterday when Doug picked me up at Logan, he asked a question, what's new? And I said, what's new? Yesterday, when I was on the air in Dallas, Jesus did this. Jesus did that. 
two days ago, I was on the air in Detroit. This was before cable. Two, uh, Jesus did this. Jesus did that. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you know me. You know that I'm not on TV very often. I don't have a radio program like a number of my friends do. Most of my ministry keeps me pretty close to Pittsburgh. But I want to tell you whether it's a restaurant or a hospital or a loading dock or a baseball game or an office or the golf course or a living room or in the pulpit, I see Jesus doing new things all the time. And sometimes he allows me to participate in them. And I find that the more I cling to him and forsake my idols, the more he allows me to participate in in those things. And those are the times when I most am aware of his hesed. His steadfast love. In 1994, Chuck Colson was at Three Rivers Stadium at the Billy Graham Crusade. Maybe you were there that night. I'll never forget what he said. He said, I wouldn't trade one day of knowing Jesus for the 40 years I didn't know him. Now think of who he was. If you don't know, I'll tell you. He was a special counsel to the President of the United States. His office was right next to the Oval Office. He had the ear of world leaders at the time, and yet he's able to say, I wouldn't trade one day of knowing Jesus for 40 years of not knowing him. You know who said it better than he did? The Apostle Paul. I consider all of my past all of my accomplishment as garbage for the sake of knowing Christ. If God is sovereign, if He's done everything there is that needs to be done for me, why do I cling to my worthless idols? Jonah would say, don't be crazy anymore, Doug. He's freed you. Why do you waste your life on everything that's fake? The woman asked, Sir, have you done any strenuous exercise in the last 24 hours? Madam, I haven't engaged in strenuous exercise for 24 years. I used to think that was funny. Now I think it's sad. More sad spiritually than physically. What about you? To whom are you clinging? Don't forfeit his hesed anymore. Turn to him. Surrender to him. And say, let me participate, Lord, in where you desire for me to be. Think about that.
Amen.